Would you join me in your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 4? We're going to continue our series and uh, consider how God is confronting Jonah with his grace. And I want to remind you as we read and as we study this text that God is confronting his people, that that's his primary audience. And so a key interpretive tool is to, to ask the bigger question, not just what is God saying to Jonah, but how is God confronting Israel right now? And so if you're with me in Jonah chapter 4, the text says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Praise God for his word. There's a lot in this text. Uh, This is one of my favorite texts of scripture, especially for counseling. Uh, When I talk to people who are angry, I take them to this text because there's rich understanding about whether or not we have the right to be angry. This is where we have become image users and not image bearers. Uh, We have set ourselves up as judges and determined, I have the right to be angry. Uh, This is wrong. And uh, this is what James warns about uh, when he talks about becoming people who show partiality, that we've become judges. And this is not uh, living as image bearers. This is is that great sin in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve not only have the knowledge of good and evil, but then they engage in that knowledge as judge, as determiners of good and evil. And so there's a lot in this text. Uh, There's a lot in this text about others and about how we treat them. But God is addressing something bigger. Uh, Something bigger for Jonah, something bigger for the nation of Israel. He is addressing their self-righteousness. And grace undermines that self-righteousness. And so for us today, the lesson that I'm going to focus on is that God confronts our self-righteousness and calls us to repentance. 
He confronts our self-righteousness and calls us to repentance. And the question becomes, how will we, how will we respond uh, to that call, to that confrontation? So the first thought. Number one, God graciously engages in Jonah's complaint. And the word graciously is in each one of these sentences intentionally. At this point in the story, it's kind of miraculous. It's kind of unthinkable that God would engage with Jonah at this level. I mean, Jonah is hot. He is ticked off. To, to say, I'm so angry, I want to die, just emphasizes how upset this prophet is. And God has no obligation. Uh, I mean, <laughs> one, of my, uh, one of my mentors used to say, you're, you're not big enough to box with God. And yet Jonah has put on his gloves, and he has stepped into the ring, and he is boxing with God. And for God to engage Jonah as patiently as he does is just kindness. It is just grace. And for God to move into Jonah's anger and move into Jonah's self-righteousness and confront these things and call him to repentance, again, it's just grace. It's just kindness. And so the first thought together is that God is graciously engaging in Jonah's complaint. And that's exactly what Jonah's doing. Jonah is complaining uh, to the Lord. He believes that God is doing something wrong. Uh, Jonah believes that God's mercy is an act of evil. And you see that in the word exceedingly. If, there's, if you have the ESV, there should be a little footnote that you can look down at your Bible and see what this word exceedingly means. He was uh, that it was what God had done was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's a better translation of uh, of what he's saying. That this is that this is evil in Jonah's eyes. God is acting inappropriately, and that what God has done is disaster is a disaster. Uh, God has lost his mind in showing Nineveh. Uh, the mercy that he is showing him. He's not acting justly in this moment. And Jonah is furious about it. He explains why he's so angry. He exposes his anger, but he explains it. He's arguing with God. And he's not willing to basically live in a world where God extends mercy to those that he deems unworthy. Again, this is what Packer calls becoming an image user, not an image bearer. Uh, to, to, to take our knowledge of good and evil uh, given us through sin and to now use it as the judge of God. And that's exactly what Jonah's doing. Jonah is condemning God's activity. You're doing the wrong thing in this moment. Uh, and a remarkable uh, statement from Jonah. And he knew God was merciful. He knew God was going to do something like this. And it's, it's really upset him now. And he's complaining to the Lord. And it does bring up a question that is not immediately answered. And that is, why is God showing Nineveh so much mercy? Um, and I, I think this is a question that we have to wrestle with when God allows evildoers to persist. When God allows those in government who are corrupt to continue in their evil. This is an act of his mercy and kindness, and it should raise the question, God, why are you allowing this? God, why are you not bringing your punishment and your wrath upon this? But that question isn't 
is not immediately answered, though it is inadvertently raised. And the question becomes, how does God uh, respond to Jonah's outburst? And I, I love this text because God knows that accusations can harden the will, but a question can soften the conscience. And uh, you can tell by the end of this book that as God asks this now twice, that, uh, that Jonah gets the message. And we'll talk about that as we get there. So God graciously engages with Jonah's complaint, and he asks him a simple question. Do you well to be angry? Do you have the right to be angry? Is this the right course of action for you to get this upset that I've shown mercy uh, to the Ninevites? And so what God does, as he is graciously engaging with his prophet, who is angry, is he asks him a question, and then he creates a situation to teach Jonah a lesson, to expose more of Jonah's heart. And so he creates a situation in his life that will help Jonah answer that question by exposing distortions about himself and about God and about the Ninevites. And so what, what we read next is God saying, let's get to the root issues. Let's expose directly the distortions. We see this in chapter 1 as God asks Jonah to do something and then Jonah flees and the, the sailors are interacting with Jonah and the captain is saying, call out to your God, maybe he'll be merciful. God's sort of digging at, Mo, at Jonah's heart in these moments. And Jonah knows he's guilty and he gets into the fish and he repents. But now God is zeroing in on the distortions that are in Jonah's heart. And so the next thing is that God graciously exposes Jonah's self-righteousness. And again, in all of this, God's primary target audience is Israel. So God is going to create a situation to expose the distortions so that they can see their self-righteousness, so that they can see that they have not uh, uh, taken in and understood the mercy that they've been shown and the grace that they have received. This hasn't changed their identity. This hasn't changed how they think about themselves, about God, and about Nineveh. And because of that, these distortions are creating a lot of heat on the part of Jonah, a lot of anger, and a lot of accusations against God. And so God disrupts Jonah's comfort to expose something in his heart, and I've entitled it victimhood. Uh, Jonah's sense of victimhood. Uh, Jonah's evaluation of what God has done and that he's gotten the short end of the stick, that Israel has gotten the short end of the stick. I mean, the Assyrians had been attacking Israel for years. They were one of Israel's key enemies. They had lost people. They had lost possession. And more than anything, they had lost their sense of peace because of this enemy. And they have become, or Jonah has developed, a victimhood mentality. Jonah's pity party reveals something about himself. And honestly, he sounds like a child. And that's why when I read this text and I read Jonah saying, you know, I'm so angry I should die. Uh, this, I've, my own children have said things like this <laughs> to me, you know. I don't want to live in a world where I can't have 
you know, whatever it is. I don't want to live in a, in a world, I don't want to live in your house if I can't stay up till 10 o'clock. I'm so angry I could die. This is Jonah's big pity party. He looks at what God has done. He discerns in his mind as, the, as God's uh, vice president that what he has done, what God has done, is wrong. And uh, it reveals a distortion about himself. And this pity party reveals his own self-pity, his victimhood. Uh, self-pity is a very passive-aggressive form of pride. And I did a series on self-pity that I, I would direct you back to uh, on our website. Self-pity is a passive-aggressive form of in essence, what it says is, uh, I deserve better. And we always pity the suffering of those that we care about. We always look on comp with compassion on the people who are suffering that we care about. And when, when it comes to self-pity, that compassion is turned inward. That compassion is turned toward us. We see ourselves as the sufferers. And we, we judge that we shouldn't be. We judge that we deserve better than this. I shouldn't be experiencing this. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've served. And often in counseling sessions or in pastoral moments, when people are expressing to me their anger, they will say things like this. A husband will say it about his wife. A wife will say it about her husband. A mom will say it about her children, after all I've done for you. And it's in those moments that they're revealing that there is a deep wound, that there is a victimhood mentality that has come, that they believe fundamentally that they deserve better than what they've received. And with that self-pity, uh, envy is close at hand. Envy is one of the uh, close cousins to self-pity. Uh, envy says, not only do I deserve better, but the people who are having it better right now, the people who have better health, or the people who have better money, or the people who have a greater mental stability, or more whatever it is, uh, self-pity's close cousin is envy. And what envy says is, I deserve what they have. I deserve better because, after all, I am who I am. And I deserve what these people have. And this is so prevalent in Christianity. This is so common in Israel. It is so natural for our hearts to be distorted to have a distorted view of ourselves, to have a distorted view of others and God because of pride. That pride, that sense of value and self-worth, that sense of love of self can distort how we think about us, God, and others. And, then and it starts this pity party when we suffer, when we experience discomfort, which is the very thing that God had created. God took away Jonah's comfort. And he started to moan and groan and talk about how unfair this was, how unrighteous this was, and that he deserved better. And certainly, he wanted what they had. He envied. 
And it's, it's amazing that Jonah's in this place because God has been so merciful to him already. Now, I want to stop and just say that there is real suffering that we experience. And uh, yet, the gospel offers us a biblical way to mourn our suffering. Uh, I'm not saying that we can't uh, mourn what we experience. We should. Uh, we should mourn our suffering and the evil that is perpetrated against us, but it must be rooted in humility and faith. And that, that, that makes the difference when, when our self-image, when who we think about, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God and others, is rooted in humility and faith instead of in pride and being an image user versus an image bearer. Then we can mourn properly. And this is what uh, many of the Psalms are all about, these laments. Uh, I read Psalm 152 in our prayer meeting on on uh, Thursday night. And, um, you know, the psalmist says, I'm going to bring my complaint before you. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with complaining to the Lord. But if it's not rooted in humility and faith, then we're going to sound like Jonah. <laughs> uh, I deserve better. I don't want to live in a world where you're, where you're in charge. I want to live in a world where you're not giving me what I want or you're not giving me what I deserve. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, The gospel holds, us, holds out to us the prospect of self-worth. The gospel holds out to us the prospect of self-worth. Not achieved, but received. And that's the difference. That quote captures what God is saying to Jonah, what he's exposing is that Jonah, as a prophet, had done what God had said and was angry that God didn't do what he said he would do and destroy Nineveh. This was achieved identity. This was achieved value. And this is where Israel had lost their way. They had forgotten Deuteronomy chapter 7 where God says, I did not choose you because of you. I chose you because I set my love on you. I didn't choose you because you're the greatest, the richest, the smartest. I chose you because I determined to set my love on you. Folks, that's mercy, and that is outside of our ability to earn. It's outside of our ability to achieve. In fact, the only thing we deserve is the eternal outpouring of the wrath of God to receive anything else is mercy. And so the gospel holds out self-worth, the prospect of it. But it's a worth given to us through our union with Christ. It's an identity built around what Christ has done for us. It's an identity received. It's value received. Because now we are the beloved of God. Not because of what we've done for God. Israel believed that they had gotten a raw deal from God and they deserved better. And that is in part why they turned to other deities. That's why they were engaging in idolatry. Because at the root of idolatry is an image user taking control of their destiny and saying, 
I can't trust God to do the right thing for me. And since I have set myself up as the determiner of what the right thing is, since I can't trust God to do the right thing for me, I'm going to go find another deity. I'm going to go find something that I can control and that I can get the outcome that I want. And so God is addressing Israel's pride. He's addressing their sense of, I know best. He's addressing their achieved identity and self-worth instead of the grace and identity based on the grace that they've received. And so God creates this beautiful story of discomfort, uh, taking away his creature comforts uh, to expose the self-righteousness and pride that is creating this pity party in Jonah's life. And then finally, God graciously reveals his mercy to Jonah. Uh, God graciously reveals his mercy to Jonah and to Israel. Uh, he, he does it by, again, asking this question, do you well to be angry? And Jonah gets, gets all hot about the plant, right? It's better for me to die than to live. And God says, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant. Angry enough to die. God, you're a plant killer. <laughs> what kind of God kills plants? Now, the plant was not the issue, right? The plant was not the issue. Jonah's sense of value, his self-worth, his overinflated ego, an ego based on his, on his distortion of himself. That's the issue. And so God's going after that. And he says, and, and God, so God says, you pity the plant. You, you care more about plants than people. His pity for the plant had nothing to do with God's treatment of the plant. And that's why when God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came in the night and perished in the night. God is basically saying, Jonah, you don't care about the plant. Let's get real here. It's not about the plant. It's about you. It's about who's in charge, who's the judge, who's the righteous one, who deserves what. And none of us deserve anything, so anything we get is, is grace, it's mercy. And so God is zeroing in on Jonah and saying, Jonah, you don't care about plants. Don't, don't feed me that lie. Jonah had just enjoyed the mercy of God in the fish, and now he has enjoyed the mercy of God with the plant, but he rejects God's mercy. And this is, you know, you ask people, do you want the mercy of God in your life? And they will always say, oh, of course I do. Well, do you want that mercy for others? Do you want that mercy for that person who hurts you, or that person who hates you, or that person who has maligned you? And they often will say, no. I want them to face the full judgment for it. Uh, Tim Keller says, God blasted his gourds. God blasted his gourds. Not just the literal one that had given him shade and comfort, but also the bigger one. His passion for his nation's prosperity and success. 
and his biggest one, his pride in his own righteousness. Again, the question that God asks, should not I pity Nineveh? Another question from God. Not an accusation. Asking Jonah to engage with his heart. Asking Jonah to consider his tirade. To consider what's going on underneath. And here's the point. Until we see ourselves as Ninevites and move past our self-righteousness, mercy will always be reserved for those whom we deem worthy. Until we see ourselves as desperate sinners, unworthy of everything that we have received, until we see ourselves as recipients of God's mercy for some mysterious reason, until we see God's divine intervention as the only reason we know him and are part of his family, and nothing within us, we will not move past our self-distortion. We will not move past a distorted view of ourselves, our own self-righteousness, our pride. We will not move past that, and we will not be ministers of mercy to our community. What is God saying to Israel as he skillfully humbles them and calls them to repentance? That's the big question. God is addressing Israel's idolatry. God, but but it's, it's bigger than that. God is addressing Israel's identity. He's calling them to face the fact that they are the Ninevites. They are the ones who had nothing to offer God, and yet God rescued them. God created them and has delivered and delivered and delivered, and yet now they're running from him because he didn't give them what they wanted. This all started back with Solomon during the, the, the times of great national prosperity, and then Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam, God's servant, the one that God put in charge, became a heavier taxer than his father did. And so the nation splits and the northern tribes launch immediately into idolatry, forsaking their covenant relationship and God's chosen king over them because they didn't like what that king was doing in their lives. And so they forsook the covenant of God. They forsook the tribe of Judah and God's kingly uh, line. And they launch into idolatry, treating God like all the other gods of the land, someone to be manipulated to get what they think they deserve. This is a powerful lesson for us. So let me ask some applications. Number one, are you disappointed with God? I would love to have asked or to be able to ask Jonah that question, just to kind of get into what's going on in his, in his brain as he's going through all this story. And I firmly believe Jonah wrote this story. Jonah, when God asked you to do that, what did you think? What did you say? How were you disappointed with what God has done? I mean, his disappointment in chapter 4 is pretty obvious. 
But I would ask you the same thing. Are you disappointed with God? Is your life not turning out the way you want it to? Your career not going the way you wanted it to? The, the things that you hoped to achieve by a certain age? You know, it's unfortunate. We, we often make deals with God. You know, like, like in the movies, when you make a deal with the devil, you sell your soul so that you can get whatever you want in this life. We, we often make these deals with God. God, if you do this for me, I'll give you my firstborn to, uh, to go into the ministry. I'll let my, one of my kids be a missionary. We make these kind of deals with God. I'll give a certain amount of money to the church or whatever. And then when God doesn't meet our expectations, when God doesn't do what we're trying to control him to do, because again, we become image users and putting ourselves in equality with God, that disappointment, that disillusionment comes. So I wonder if you're disappointed with God. I wonder if that's why your, your Bible reading, your prayer times, your, your engagement with him in relationship either hasn't taken off or has waned. Maybe even in this pandemic, you're frustrated because you're struggling or you're fearful about your business and you just don't see how God can be in the midst of this. Are you disappointed with God? Are you disillusioned? I promise you, your disillusionment is coming because of distortions in your own heart. Not because of anything in God. I don't understand God's ways, but I believe that he is wise. I believe that he is sovereign, and I believe that his glory is at the center of everything that he does. And I believe that everything that happens to me is for my good to accomplish the purpose that he has for me. And I think you believe that too. I can't explain what's going on, but I trust. So I wonder, and I think this is something for you to, to listen to the Holy Spirit on. Are you disappointed with God? A second question. Does God's mercy make sense to you? Does God's mercy make sense to you? That's a yes or no question, right? Does God's mercy make sense to you? If your answer is yes, then I would like to talk to you after the service because I'd like to know how you can say that. Because our answer should be no. I mean, other than the fact that we know God is merciful, he reveals himself as being compassionate, as being merciful, as having pity or compassion on sinners. But if it makes sense to you, then I would challenge that maybe you've misunderstood what mercy is. Does God's mercy make sense to you? It doesn't to me. I don't deserve what I've received. I don't deserve the life he's given me. I don't deserve the family, the wife he's given me. I don't deserve the job he's given me. I don't deserve all that I've received. And so I look at, at, at what he's given me and wonder why. His mercy does not make sense. And I think, I think the more we go there, the more we lean into, I'm an Ninevite, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve anything from the Lord, the more his mercy 
fails to make sense and we can genuinely rejoice and receive what he has given us. Another question, what distresses you? What really creates disaster in your life? Suffering sinners or bad cell service? I, I chose those intentionally because I, in the text, Jonah, Jonah cares more about his creature comforts than he does people who are under the wrath and judgment of God. Jonah's more concerned about his bad cell service than he is about sinners who are facing a just God. Now, when I was in uh, seminary, uh, one of our uh, college and, and university leaders used to begin every chapel service with this phrase. The greatest tragedy of today is that people are dying and going to hell today. Now, I wonder if we have that level of compassion. I wonder if, if we're oriented towards others that way, or if we're so focused on our bad cell service, on our creature comforts. Because after all, I deserve better cell service. I deserve better Wi-Fi. I deserve, and I, I mean, all the things I think I deserve because of a distorted view of myself. Now, I disagree with that president's or that, uh, that leader's statement. The greatest tragedy in the world today is not that people are dying to go to hell. That is a tragedy. The greatest tragedy today would be the glory of God is not being declared. That there are sinners who don't know the glory of God, that there are image bearers that are not worshiping their God. I would think that's a, a greater tra tragedy. But get the point. We're so focused on our creature comforts. We have so much, our, our love is so turned inward that we don't see the suffering around us. We don't see the people who are lost around us, the image bearers of God who don't know the grace and the mercy of God. Another question, how will you respond to God's grace? It's interesting the book is written that way. The book is written without a conclusion. We don't know how Jonah responds. As God asks him these questions, do you do well to be angry? And shouldn't I show compassion? Shouldn't I weep, have pity over Nineveh? I actually cared for them. I actually created them. I actually, like that plant, Jonah, that you didn't help grow, I actually did sustain these people. I actually have been showing mercy to them every day. Shouldn't I continue? We don't know how Jonah responds. Now, we assume, believe, that Jonah wrote this book. But he left the ending wide open. So that we can all ask the question, how did he respond? How did this affect him? And if he wrote the book and he's putting his life on display, then we have a good idea of how he responded. That God's work to get to his prejudice, to his self-pity, and to all the things that were motivating him, all that self-righteousness and pride that was motivating his actions. We think he got the message, but he leaves it open so that you as a reader will ask that question. How will you respond to God's grace?
Finally, how is Jesus better than Jonah? How is Jesus better than Jonah? Well, there's a number of things that I think we could point to. Number one, Jesus was a faithful prophet. Jesus laid aside his glory, not counting that equality with God something to be held on to. Jesus didn't just come and preach damnation and then leave and wait for God to destroy. Jesus actually went farther than that. And that's why we celebrate today Palm Sunday as Jesus is entering into the city, preparing to give his life something Jonah was not willing to do. Jonah was willing to go and risk his life for a few days and preach a message that might get him killed. But he wasn't willing to preach with compassion. He wasn't willing to minister to the city to help them repent. And he certainly wasn't willing to give his life for the city. My friends, Jesus is so much better than Jonah. Jesus has compassion on sinners. Jesus has compassion on you. He pities us. He's merciful. He's so much better than Jonah. And we rejoice in him. And I would urge you, no matter where you are in your journey, would you turn to Jesus today and allow him to humble you and give you the mercy that he has provided for you through his saving grace. And as the people of God, let's rejoice in all that Christ has done for us today. God bless you.